Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast, recorded Monday, January 9th, 2006, at the Society's 35th Critical Care Congress here in San Francisco, California. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. In today's podcast, we will be speaking with Lieutenant Colonel Chet Morrison, M.D. Dr. Morrison is Director of Surgical Critical Care and an Assistant Professor of Surgery at Michigan State University. In addition, he was the former Director of Surgical Critical Care and Attending Surgeon at Tripler Army Medical Center in Hawaii, and he has been a commander of two forward surgical teams, one out of Korea and one out of Kentucky. He has acted as moderator for the session Life During Wartime, the Care and Transport of the Critically Ill Patient in a Combat Setting. He is with us today to share his thoughts on the session topic as well as his expertise in the area of wartime combat critical care. Thank you very much, sir, for being with us today. Thank you, Dr. Savell. It's an honor to be doing this podcast. Um, I had the uh, pleasure of going to your session uh, a couple of hours ago. And I wanted to start out by having you take us through this scenario. You're a soldier in Iraq, and you unfortunately get wounded. What, what will happen? Well, in the military, we have what are called echelons of care, and they go from level one through five. So although every soldier won't go through every echelon of care, they're structured so that most of the soldiers will pass through most of the echelons of care. For example, the first echelon of care, what I certainly hope would happen to the soldiers wounded in Iraq, is they would get care from their buddy or from an army combat medic who will immediately rush to where they are and provide basic level one care, stopping the bleeding, treating their shock, and basically uh, getting them out of there, as well as, of course, being that this is combat, protecting themselves. And so it'll be so rapid assessment and and sort of putting a putting pressure on bleeding yeah. wounds and getting them out quickly? Yeah, buddy care. They also, a medic can start an IV, and a medic can also give certain medications, um, such as morphine. From there, they're taken to what we call level two care, which is a forward military medical center, either a battalion aid station or something that the military has just developed in the past 12 years, a forward surgical team. And both of those are level two. The forward surgical team can also provide immediate surgery. For example, if a soldier is wounded such that they're bleeding and they won't survive a transport to a hospital, the forward surgical team has the capability of arresting the hemorrhage 
and providing airway control so that they can make it to the hospital in time. And um, why don't we talk about that for, for a little bit longer? How far away would a forward surgical team be from a soldier where he gets wounded? He it's quite variable, um, in part because the front changes so rapidly, as we learned during our first Operation Desert Storm, where the units were advancing hundreds of miles per day. And in this current Iraqi and Afghanistan conflict, the front sort of is everywhere and nowhere. So in general, the forward surgical teams are set up so that the soldier is within 5 to 10 miles, which is quite rapidly covered by an Army Blackhawk helicopter and also can fairly easily be reached by a Army ground transport. So will the preponderance of wounded soldiers that are being transported to the FST uh, be transported by helicopter? It's about 50-50. Um, in the, these days, the FSTs don't get a lot of patients by helicopter simply because most patients, when they're wounded, can survive long enough for the helicopter to fly a little extra longer to get to a combat support hospital, which is level 3 or echelon 3 medical care. Occasionally, however, for someone who has an immediate problem like an airway issue where they're, they have airway compromise or they have hemorrhage that a medic can't arrest and the uh, determination is such that they're not going to make it to a combat support hospital, the helicopter can touch down to the forward surgical team. Moreover, they will sometimes fly less severely wounded casualties so that the most severely wounded casualties are flown to a combat support hospital and the FST sometimes gets their overflow. How, who makes these uh, kinds of decisions about where they are taken? The uh, medic um, in the helicopter can make those decisions, and they can also communicate to the physicians in the battalion aid station or to the forward surgical team, and they can also make that decision of, we need to touch down here. And um, in terms of who makes up the teams, what would be the difference between the combat support hospital and the forward support team? The forward surgical team really consists of 20 people, um, two or three general surgeons, an orthopedic surgeon, um, their support nurses and support techs. We also have two anesthesiologists there, and we have one administrative um, person. The, but that's it, and that's really not a lot of people. Um, whereas the combat support hospital is staffed like a general hospital would be. They have, a t they have subspecialists. They'll have neurosurgeons there. They'll have more sophisticated diagnostic equipment. They'll have internists. Um, strictly speaking, the intensive care physicians would be there. And that's more set up as a um, hospital. Plus, in terms of military doctrine, a forward surgical team can move. It can go one area, and then the next day it can be moved somewhere else. And the whole concept was that this was surgical capability that would keep up with the advancing line, whereas a combat support hospital is a relatively fixed facility. So from your from your lecture, the forward surgical team is a completely mobile entity. Is that what to, to, to expand yes. upon that? Now, granted, in the recent conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, they haven't been very mobile just because the front doesn't really change. Again, it's sort of everywhere and nowhere. In a way, the front is just beyond the walls of the forward operating base where the FST uh, operates from. But they can move if they want to. And in fact, when I was in Iraq, we actually had a portion of our forward surgical team relocate to an area of the country that the Spanish had pulled out of. And uh, in terms of numbers, how many forward surgical teams are there and how many in the ratio of forward surgical teams to combat support hospitals? 
There's four combat support hospitals currently in Iraq, and there's two of them in Afghanistan. The number of forward surgical teams, however, is quite variable, and there are more or less depending on the situation. Their greatest need for forward surgical teams, in my opinion, is really in the initial phases of the conflict. And there's been a couple of very good articles written by friends of mine, one Dr. Rush and the other Dr. Beakley, who detailed their experience with the forward surgical teams in the initial phases of conflict. They're both very busy and very mobile. And since then, the number of forward surgical teams has kind of been drawn down just because there's less of a need for those assets and more of a need for uh, combat support hospitals and also mobile transport and you know forward stations really basically to initiate ATLS and get the patients to the combat support hospital get them to that level three the echelons that I mentioned earlier can we um, go over the other two levels of care I'm sorry I interrupted certainly then from the from the combat support hospital they're then moved to a regional medical center Um, and the one that has been used out of Iraq is Landstuhl in Germany and that's felt to be a level four, echelon four care. The Navy also has two hospital ships, the Mercy and the Comfort, which also are echelon four hospitals. They're almost the equivalent of um, major medical centers in which they have a larger number of subspecialists. They have even more diagnostic and they have some rehabilitative um, services as well. And um, these hospitals are also set up to handle larger numbers than the combat support hospitals. Would you ever be a, could you be an army soldier and sent to one of the Navy hospital ships? Does that ever happen? Oh, yes. Um, all the medical facilities are joint medical facilities by definition. Oh. It's really sort of the job of the medical planners on the ground to figure out who goes where. But uh, once they're in theater, it's basically, they're just military and they treat military. And I would interject, they treat um, other casualties of war. They treat American contractors. They treat uh, enemy prisoners of war, some local nationals who happen to get caught in the crossfire. And frankly, you treat some um, children that come in. You know, they'll bring children in there, and they're not supposed to get in base, but it's, it's hard to uh, resist you know, a, a sick child, so they come in and we treat those as well. It's kind of an interesting patient mix that you get, and uh, that's just the fact of uh, modern warfare as it stands. Yeah, no, it was another major, major point from your the series of uh, lectures in your section that uh, uh, the patients that you were treating, uh, he was saying, uh, they were all saying a large number were not military soldiers, uh, yes. not American soldiers. Yes, that's right. Uh, a number of them are not military soldiers. And we try to treat them so that the resources are allocated fairly. Certainly in my experience over there, I never saw nor heard of any American soldier not getting the best treatment just because we were treating somebody else or treating an enemy prisoner of war. And really, as a medical person, it's very simple in my mind. They bring you people, and you take care of them, and you take care of them to the best of your ability. Again, I personally, when I was over there, took care of a wide variety of people who just happened to be there. And is there, you were saying, the fifth echelon after the regional medical center? The fifth echelon is generally the rehabilitative and major medical centers in the states, like Walter Reed, Bethesda Naval, and uh, San Antonio. And so just to recap for those who are not in the military, so the, it sounds like the, the first three, the medic, the FST, and the you, you call it the CASH or CSH? Yes, that's right. And and in your lecture, you're saying that that is what used to be known as a MASH? Or the ma- yeah, the MASHs were sort of a mixture. Sort of, they're almost, the MASHs were almost level two and a half care between the um, 
forward surgical teams and the combat support hospitals. You have to realize warfare has changed, and that brings up a point that um, is very much germane, you know, not only to the conversation, but uh, to how military medicine is evolving, in that in previous conflicts, up to and including the Vietnam War, and to some cases, in, to some extent, Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm, the casualties were kept in theater for a long period of time. In part, it was felt because that's where the care needed to be given, and also in part because our transport wasn't very good. Now, the casualties are generally not in theater for a long period of time if they can't be returned to duty. Um, if they can be returned to duty, of course, they're returned to duty. If they're not, however, they don't tend to hang around in the area of operations for a long time, in part because they can get better medical care at the higher echelons, and also because, and this was something that uh, our lecturers in this session that we had this morning spent a lot of time talking about, our ability to transport these patients and transport them safely and transport them with, in my you know, humble opinion, a very impressive level of support really has evolved. And I would really, in fact, go further and say that is really the major medical advance that we've gotten out of this conflict is patient transport and you know patient flow and getting them to where they really need to be. And um, I guess before we talk about some of the other issues I'd like to speak about, can you talk about some of the technical advances in transport that may not be obvious? Some of the technical advances in transport simply relate to things like better litters. Um, the monitoring equipment hasn't changed that much, but how it's utilized has changed. And um, the other one I'd say is that people are trained for it more. It's not like people used to get sort of picked out, oh, you go with this person, you go with that one. And in fact, I well remember when I was a general surgeon practicing over in Korea, periodically if we had an ill patient that we were transporting to Tripler in Hawaii, and that was where our Echelon 5 um, facility was that uh, we... we sent people to from Korea, very frequently one of the general surgeons themselves would have to go. Well, actually, this was tried in Somalia during the um, operations there, and they actually lost some of their surgical capability during the days that were depicted in Black Hawk Down because they had to fly somebody who was uh, ill and who needed uh, medical attention to the hospital in Germany. Unfortunately, this detracted from the surgical capability just when they, it was most needed. So just this concept of uh, patient transport and getting the ability to do good monitoring, getting the ability to provide ventilatory care. The ventilators are smaller now. Um, one of the things that was talked about was a, uh, a more portable oxygen carrier that can store more oxygen. Right. Those kind of little prosaic things that you have to realize when you're transporting someone there. Better... Uh, better um, IV fluid delivery. Well, like you were saying, I remember in, in your lecture that, that a lot of the things that are completely taken for granted uh, with civilian care in the United States, like oxygen, suction, light, uh, and water, things like that are just are not available certain times. Yes, um, and they're more difficult to provide. You have to realize in the civilian setting, very ill patients are generally not transported from one place to the other. It happens on occasion. But in general, most of the time, the ill patients arrive to the hospitals where they need to go. That's why we set up our regional trauma network. And once they're there, they pretty much stay there. And they don't go until they're ready for rehabilitative or long-term care, care, which is kind of a different uh, entity altogether than transporting very critically ill 
people who are still in need of support, who are still getting transfusions, who may be getting pressors, and who are need mechanical ventilation with uh, high oxygen concentrations. And so, in a way, the military has had to pioneer a lot of this. And one of the things that we're hoping in this session and future sessions is to sort of foster the spirit of collaboration so that the military and the civilian uh, portions of the um, whoever delivers critical care learn from each other and improve each other's systems of care. So before I get to the uh, discussion of critical care, I, I wanted to ask you a personal question is, um, is it counterintuitive as a surgeon to have the, uh, the focus of the surgery compartmentalized that in the forward surgical team we have to get to the patient sort of stabilized and then moving on? I know that was brought up in, in one of the uh, lectures where they say it can often be a challenge. Yeah, actually, I'm glad you raised that point because it can be very counterintuitive. You have to realize when you're at a forward surgical team that the amount of surgery you, and support you can provide is very limited and ought to be very straightforward. Very often, patients are just brought to a forward surgical team and you initiate resuscitation on them, you get an airway, you basically are doing ATLS on them. They may have an indication for surgery, but you're actually better off sending them to a combat support hospital where they can get surgery and be better supported than jumping into an operation there. That is, of course, provided the patient is not exsanguinating or doesn't have an immediate need for surgery. And you don't actually go with the patient when they go from the forward surgical uh, FST to the CSH, right? No. In general, the, they don't. And the reason for that is because if I do that, then I'm sort of taken out of the uh, out of the FST and so the, the FST. medics go on the transport. Yeah, the medics and the transport, the transport medics go with that. And we have occasionally sent our nurses. We do have skilled nurses available at the FST, and we've occasionally sent them. Or if there's airway maintenance issues, we've occasionally sent one of our CRNAs. This also brings up the point that you sort of have to practice a lot of what we in the military call situational awareness wherever you are. Realize what you've got realize what you can do and also realize how what you do affects the capability of what you got. For example, we might send one of our CRNAs with a patient to the cache because of airway issues, but we also have to realize we've just cut our anesthesia support in half. So if we have one patient and not more expected, that's a very straightforward thing. If we have several patients and or if we have many patients that are expected because say of some combat action or roadside IED, then we might not do that simply because there might be a lot of other patients that are going to need it. That, that so support. lots of very difficult decisions. There are difficult decisions, and it's actually somewhat paradoxical in that your, your it, decisions that sometimes calls for the most experience and judgment are actually far forward, where a lot of times your more inexperienced providers are, whereas the management in bigger hospitals for penetrating trauma and blast injuries and that things come up as can be a little more straightforward in that okay now we've got these resources of a combat support hospital let's mobilize them for this soldier so we can pull them out is there lots of there must be constant communication between the FST and the and the CSH Are yes there on is the radio or whatever yeah we have uh, radio networks that we can communicate over um, FSTs don't exist in a vacuum they're supposed to be co-located with a medical support company and generally, they're on forward operating bases that have military support units as well, so that we can communicate with the combat support hospital. And in fact, one of the other things that we can do is we can also communicate with our colleagues back home. And another advance 
and something I certainly like to see happen more is having the healthcare system, all those echelons, get wired into the same network. Similar to in a battlefield, how a battalion commander can see where all his maneuver units are going, and you know a brigade commander or division commander can see where all his battalions so to are. So optimize the resource utilization, things like that. Right, and so that it's easy to track a patient from point one point to another. And so all the interventions are documented and that everybody knows where the patients are in the system. And that's something that's gotten a lot better, though, in my opinion, could be improved a lot more. And that's one of the areas the military is uh, going towards. Um, I guess there are two other areas that I'd like to talk about, and I guess you can pick one or we can talk about both. And One is that from what I understood from your lectures and from my reading is that because of body armor, the nature of the injuries have changed. And specifically, uh, one of the main points was a large number of amputations, if you'd like to talk about that for a little bit. Yes. The body armor has been quite a uh, quite an improvement in the way we equip and the way we protect our warfighters because the materials in the body armor are quite effective at stopping projectiles, and very often they'll stop bullets. Um, plus, the Kevlar that the helmets are made of now is also very effective. It won't stop everything but it will stop quite a lot. And as a consequence, we don't get a lot of the penetrating truncal and abdominal trauma that you would see, say, in the Vietnam conflict, nor do you get quite as many head wounds, though you do get some of them because the Kevlar can't protect everything. And um, plus, uh, again, a, sometimes a direct wound that fired at close range will penetrate a Kevlar. And occasionally, people just get caught without wearing their Kevlar. It, it's rare, but it does happen occasionally. Um, so you see less of that, but that does mean that you see more extremity injuries simply because a soldier may be riding around, an IED goes off, they're protected by their body armor and their Kevlar. The IED is the improvised... The improvised explosive device. Right. It's a acronym that people over there become very familiar with very quickly, and it's used just as a normal word. You know, everybody knows what you're talking about, an IED. And uh, unfortunately, it's a facet of modern warfare that we just have to live with. It mean, Because of our protective armor, a lot of those soldiers are surviving now who wouldn't survive beforehand. So they're surviving with their extremity injuries. Beforehand, you wouldn't see someone that close to a blast. They wouldn't be alive. They wouldn't be a problem in a sense. But now they can survive. So it's almost, it's almost similar to what's happening in the automobile industry where because of... Um, seat belts and survivable airbags. car accidents. Yeah, right. the survivable car accidents are going up, but the amount of uh, rather impressive orthopedic injuries, broken hips, broken femurs, broken arms, if anything has increased simply because people who are in a crash severe enough who normally wouldn't survive, now they are surviving and you're seeing fierce uh, rather impressive orthopedic injuries. And, and you personally have been involved in these kinds of decisions that you have to make about amputations oh, yes. out there? Oh yes, every surgeon has. Um, most of the time, it's rather straightforward. Um, three out of and the uh, emergency war sur surgery uh, data says that about three out of every four times, you're basically just completing the amputation. In other words, the limb is clearly oh, from the injury. Right, the limb is clearly non-viable. There's a bit of severing of the arteries, and also the nerves have been severed. The bone is shattered. You're basically completing the amputation, and of course, stopping the bleeding, which you know, sort of where it's at. Also, in a far forward setting, you don't necessarily have to make the decision if the limb is clearly viable because, again, you're just going to stop the bleeding and uh, ship them forward. Now, some of those soldiers will go on to amputation, 
um, particularly because they can rehab a lot faster once their mangled extremity has been taken care of and they can rehab on a prosthesis. On occasion, one is faced with a decision far forward. But usually so when you say far, far forward, forward, would a combat support hospital do an amputation? Yes, a combat support hospital would. A combat support hospital, though, would have the ability to check the patient the next day and assess limb viability. In general, we don't like to do it if there's any limb viability. Um, you know, you can always do an amputation later on. And, uh, you know, the natural instinct of surgeons really is to try and save the right, limb. Right, right, right. Or recognize right away this limb can't be saved and then amputate. Uh, occasionally there are difficult decisions about whether you can do it. We try to give people the benefit of the doubt simply because, uh, you know, people can make a rather remarkable recovery, particularly our young fit soldiers. And you were saying, uh, and please correct me on all this, but the, the number of, the amount of time spent at these different places, you said like the FST is hours and the combat support hospital is a, is a day or so? or um, Usually. Sometimes they're Sometimes they spend a little longer, but in general, the range of the combat support hospital is days, whereas in higher levels of care, in echelon four and five, it might be weeks. But the FST, it really is, did I hear that right? It was, you want it to be like six hours or something? Yes, that's correct. That's the doctrine. The doctrine is six hours of holding time. Of course, you know, like we say in the Army, there's no plan of attack that survives contact with the enemy unscathed. So you have to be kind of flexible, and there are occasionally patients who will stay there longer, particularly patients who are um, able to be returned to duty. And we actually get a few of those. Strictly speaking, the FST is for emergency surgery, but you know those kind of fine distinctions often break down in a heavy flow of casualties. So you basically manage what comes through the door that comes through your FST, and sometimes you can keep someone a little longer because you think you can return them to duty. The other thing is. You might be holding somebody, and they say, okay, yeah, six hours, except a sandstorm has come up, and the helicopters can't fly. And so, you know, you're basically going to be carrying them until the helicopters can fly. I guess as a last point, and um, the issue of critical care in these settings, and from what I understood, uh, there aren't a lot of intensivists per se, and you wanted you were actually addressing that issue during this session. If you could talk about that a little bit as a conclusion. Yeah, as a the issue of critical care in the combat setting is one that I think we need a lot more data on, one that right now almost seems to be a little bit of a folk art, meaning that whoever's there and who has some critical care knowledge, be it a surgeon, be it an intensivist, be it uh, an internal medicine doctor, be it an anesthesiologist, they're tasked to provide the support, not only you know during a patient's operation, but also during the holding period. Patient might be on mechanical ventilation and have a requirement for pressors. They certainly have a requirement for fluids. They may have a requirement for antibiotics. Basically, they have a requirement for critical care. My old program director used to say critical care is a concept, not a place. So one of the things we want to do is apply those concepts to the people as they go through the various echelons of care. I happen to be critical care trained, so when I was over there, I could make some contributions in terms of assessing patients and providing the services that you know I could. But you know the the other FST might have some people who weren't critical care trained. The combat support hospital usually has one or two, but there may be areas there where they don't have an actual fellowship trained intensivist, either a surgeon or anesthesiologist or pulmonologist, who can do this. So it sort of falls on 
whatever doctor is there who has the most knowledge, who familiarizes themselves with equipment on hand, sometimes very basic, and who kind of has to put this together and support a patient as best they can and recognize when they can't support someone and to get them up to the higher level as soon as they can. And um, do you, is there a, a plan in the military to try and officialize the critical care clinicians uh, to some degree or anything like that? Well, we have a designator if we're intensive care trained. And Kirk Grathwall, is, who's one of my colleagues who's currently working in San Antonio, is actually working on just that. Uh, and, you know, it's basically a matter of recognition, of getting the Army and getting the military to recognize that, you know, everybody kind of pulls together, and modern care involves the interplay between surgeons and intensivists, just like it does in a civilian trauma setting. That's right. And I, so I think that, in a sense, the future for critical care in the military is bright because our services are very drastically needed. And one final point that I'd make is that even when these conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan wind down, there will always be others. We actually go to a lot of other places that perhaps don't make the news as much, but you're still providing emergency surgery and emergency critical care in a very austere, far forward, sometimes not a lot of resources kind of place. We've been speaking today with Lieutenant Colonel Chet Morrison. He's the Director of Surgical Critical Care and an Assistant Professor of Surgery at Michigan State University. Thank you so very much for being with us today. Thank you, Dr. Savile. It's been my pleasure. This concludes our podcast for Monday, January 9th, 2006. The Society's Critical Care Congress offers the opportunity to hear from critical care experts on a variety of cutting-edge topics. Mark your calendar for February 17th through the 21st, 2007, and attend the 36th Critical Care Congress in Gaylord Palms, Florida. Thanks again for listening. Stay up to date on advancements in the critical care profession by attending the Society of Critical Care Medicine's new educational series, Critical Care Academy, giving you tools to increase your critical care skills and knowledge. Critical Care Academy features the adult and pediatric multi-professional critical care review courses on July 18th through the 22nd, 2006. Prior to the review courses, take part in the new Clinical Strategies and Skills Simulation in Pediatric Critical Care or the expanded American Board of Internal Medicine Critical Care Self-Evaluation Process Module Review on July 16th through 17th to enhance your board review process. Tailor your learning experience to suit your specific needs at one convenient location, saving you time and money. Register today to guarantee your course selections by speaking with a SCCM customer service representative at 1-847-827-6888 or visit www.sccm.org.